Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad Podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you for joining us another Sunday morning for some great conversation around fatherhood. Um, We are so happy and so proud about all of the success that we've had uh, with this podcast. I started this thing some seven months ago um, because I just wanted to really stimulate the field of fatherhood with stories that inspire people, that inform people, that educate people around this work and really strengthen their belief in family. I do think that we're at a time right now where our country is struggling with understanding um, the necessity of family and the essentialness of family and where I can amplify the conversation of fathers because we often get lost in that conversation. Um, But we also have to kind of talk about the beauty of family. And sometimes we got to talk about the other things that are not so beautiful, but then make us who we are, right? And so we all have that story. We all have that thread in our lives of things that have inspired us to be who we are today. And as much as we may not of liked how or the path of our life and how we got to where we are. Like God has a plan for us. I truly believe that. I truly believe that anything that I've gone through in my life was done specifically to get me exactly where I am today. And for that, I am honored and I don't complain about where I come from. I only rejoice in where I'm going. That frame of consciousness is the frame of consciousness of my guest today. Um, Shenandoah Shefalo. Shefalo. Shenandoah Shefalo. Like off to Buffalo. She said it's Buffalo, and she don't know I'm a New Yorker, so I know shuffling off to Buffalo. Um, But she's a graduate of Michigan State University, and she holds a B, um, A, as a major in interdisciplinary studies in social science. Um, She is a core essentials graduate from Coach U. um, And she's also a member of Foster Leaders, the Foster Leaders Movement. Uh, She's a sought after speaker on topics surrounding youth and foster care and has been featured as a guest locally, nationally and internationally, a survival and alumni of the foster care system. Shenandoah is also the co-founder of the Good Harvard Institute, which translates evidence-based research on trauma into skills that can be used immediately and every day. At Good Harvard Institute, they believe that knowing is not enough, skills plus action equals healing. In addition to that, she has a book, and her book is called Garbage Bag Suitcase. And I'm going to tell you, she was introduced to me by my good friend, Sharon. Um, And I bought, purchased her book when Sharon told me about her. And I've now listened to it one and a half times. I listened to it all the way through once. And then I went back and listened to it today. And her story is so compelling. And what we're going to kind of lean on in our conversation is I really want her to kind of talk about um, her work, her book, um, her life, particularly as it pertains to 
um, the men in her life, more specifically her father and her stepfather, and then currently um, her being a mother to her, um, her lovely Sophia. That's her name, right? Sophia, remember? Correct. Um, and her husband, who I'm sure is so, so proud of all of the work that you're doing. Shenandoah, how are you doing today? Kind of thanks so much for having me on the show today. Uh, super excited to be with you and super excited to push this conversation forward that you so eloquently talked about, about where are dads in the conversation of family. Mm-hmm. Um, because I talk about this quite often when we're even having the trauma story that we talk about mothers and and pregnancy and what can happen in developmental trauma and, and all those pieces. And it's just so clear how often dads are left out of that conversation. And I'm reminded of a training I did recently where I showed a video and in the video it was interactions with dads and, and babies. Mm-hmm. And the comments lit up with, I'm so glad that you're talking about dads, right? Because so often when we're when we're talking about families, it's about moms and families and, mm-hmm. and issues there. And I think you're just so right about how mm-hmm. how the dad influence, how important that is, and how it is left out of the conversation we have and and our and how it's left out of our histories quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we um, you know, one of the things or one of my strategies in this work is to um always uplift the stories, no matter what the stories are. Um, we follow um a number of different proverbs, but one African proverb in particular. Um, in order to water the rose, you must also care for the thorns. And so, you know, oftentimes when we're talking about dads, you know, there's always the beauty and inspiration in those stories, but there's also oftentimes a lot of other emotions that don't feel Mm -hmm. so good when it comes to our dads. I'm going to open up our conversation today with a question that I ask all of my guests that sets the tone for our conversation moving forward. And that is, what's your daddy's story? What's your daddy's story? Yeah, I, I wish I could succinctly summarize that, but I think, you know, my daddy story starts with the faux daddy. So for for the first 12 or 13 years of my life, I believed one individual to be my father, um, only to then learn that that wasn't my father. And so I grew up believing um, that I had a father who was a person who um, had changed his name and was on the run from the police for unknown illicit activities that had occurred in, in their early years. Um, and because of that story, we moved frequently. So we moved over 50 times in a very short period of time, about four or five years. And of course, it was a secret about why we had to constantly move, what what were the allegations, um, what did that consist of. That person, uh, who I believe to be my father, was abusive. Him and my mother suffered from alcohol and drug addiction all through my life. Um, and there was inconsistency, right? They, they would fight, they would break up, we would leave and move, he would reappear. And, and that was kind of a constant theme um, throughout all of the early years that I remember. And 
I mean, maybe to make matters worse, because you're a New York guy, I mean, he's also a Patriots fan, so that didn't help things, right, Kat? <laughs> like, the things that you hold on to, like, <laughs> the things you hold on to. Um, I, I can't, I like, I can't even look at you thinking about you being a New Yorker, and then you're one of the few people who will resonate that, like, and then I had to live with a Patriots fan on top of all of it, right? right? <laughs> um, and so it, it was a... It was a relationship of the only way you get love is by silence and obedience. Mm -hmm. And anything beyond that was met with severe uh, abuse, both physical abuse as well as emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if, if he felt that you ate too much for dinner, then you would go a week without eating because you already had plenty. And so there was a lot of torture in my childhood. And when I was about 12 or 13, my half brother um, sort of let the story slip that that wasn't really my father. But there was no answer to then who my father was. And at that same time that the story slipped, I actually entered foster care. And so I've spent the next five years of my life um, in foster homes and in various residential settings until I aged out. Throughout my foster care proceedings, well, uh, they claimed they looked for my father. Um, I would find much later in my life that they actually never made an attempt to find my father. Mm-hmm. And I would find my father myself. Uh, you're old school and I'm old school. We used to have this thing called information. You could dial up. <laughs> right. Area code, right? <laughs> five, 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 one, two, one, two. You could find out where anybody was on the planet. We didn't have Facebook. We had information. And so I actually called information in the last city that I knew my biological father had lived in. All I had was a name. And I didn't find him. I found my biological grandfather, who uh, coincidentally wasn't speaking to my father, right? They had an estranged relationship. But I sat on the phone with my biological grandfather for about 45 minutes, having a very nice conversation. And then about two and a half hours later, my dad called me. My grandfather was able to call my uncle, who was able to get a hold of my dad. And um, it was the first time ever hearing my biological father's voice when I was 18 years old. And so I then spent the next two decades trying to reconcile all of those pieces of me and all of those various stories, because there was much grief about who I thought I was and who I actually was. And then there was a lot of grief of if this person really did exist, then then why did I have to go through the torture that I went through? Um, Why had my biological father abandoned me? And it's actually something him and I still struggle with in our conversations to this day, because we remember my childhood in very different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, you know, where I want to kind of lean into now is, you know, the time period to which you were a foster child. Um, and, and even going back a little bit before that, because one of the things that I know with our dads, right. Is that 
when they have that first contact with their child, they don't really understand where the anger is coming from. Mm. That they really believe that the only thing that they were in your life was just absent. Right? And they don't realize that that absent, that absence created a void to which you had to live in. Right? And they don't understand what that space and experience is. Can you talk a little bit about that space and experience from your perspective as a foster child to help dads understand a little bit about the story that is often left untold because it's masked by the anger? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of reflection on, um, you know, this question and similar questions, which is, uh, if my parents can't love me, who can? Because when you are alone, and, and that's what foster care is, we can, we can try to fancy it up in all kinds of ways, but you're really a child alone in the world. Mm-hmm. You, you are not connected to anything permanent, and it can change at a moment's notice. And so, you know, when you're completely feral in that way, I mean, it's really the only way I can describe it. It's that, that you were once a house pet and now you're feral, right? It, it's, it's a house pet that was never found again, is that you begin to find your own way. And, and the question that I remember asking myself over and over again from, from 12 to 18 and, and post 18 a well is, is what did I do that caused my parents both to not love me, right? So I lost not only my father, but my mother, And what was it about me? What was the thing so innately wrong with me that even my parents couldn't stand to be around it? Mm -hmm. And I think it's that void that when the person resurfaces, right? When When they come back, when you do the work, when you find them, however that happens for you is... I think the thing that I realized now that I crave was an apology. Right. And and I say this very frequently still is I'm still waiting from my father, from a system. It's probably the thing that most keeps me locked in my own personal dungeon the most. Mm-hmm. Um. I can have some rational thought about it in moments and I can have some unrational thoughts about it in other moments. Mm -hmm. But, but you weren't there. And so that pain, you know, when we're together kind of, and we go through something together, then we have this mutual understanding of what that was. We have that connection, whether it was good, bad, or otherwise, Mm -hmm. we just know we can look at each other and, and just know Mm-hmm. When you're not there, when you're absent, you don't get to just walk in and take credit for what I've become. Mm. Right. Because you didn't go through it. And I think that was made clear to me. I was actually at a dinner with my father and a, a girlfriend at the time. And she asked me a question about my childhood. And I began answering her. My father became very upset at the dinner. 
mm-hmm. and said, that's not what happened. That's I never bought those products into our home and, and was very, you know, aggressive about it. Mm-hmm. And I just was looking at him and, and she turned to him and said, you weren't there. Right. So it was as if he was creating the story. And I'm sure in his household it was different, but I wasn't in that household. I was in this household over here where other things were happening, right? And so when I heard her say that to him, when I heard a different person say, you weren't there mm-hmm. when that was occurring to her, it was almost a release for me mm-hmm. of like, that's exactly it. You weren't there and you don't get to say what the story was. Right. And you also don't get to respond to it. Right. Like you don't, you know, unfortunately in this moment, I need what you've always done and that's be silent. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that we know when we're working with our dads, you know, we always talk about programmatically, we always go after two things to get them to realize things that they won't realize. Um, and those two things is we either come after your shame or we come after your pain. Right, one or the two is going to get a reaction out of you. Um, And it's also um, that shame thing is one of the things that uh, mounds and keeps dads from reuniting with their children. It's very difficult for a man in particular to overcome the issue of shame. And shame gets bigger and bigger the longer and longer you don't do what your morality is telling you to do, Mm. which is you got to show up, but your shame keeps saying, I don't know what I'm going to say to her. I don't know what I'm going to say to him. I don't know if I have the right answer to the questions they're going to ask me. I don't know whether or not my own selfish needs are greater than the needs of the child who needed me so desperately. Right. And when you don't have answers to those questions, that shame continues to build, 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 build. And at some point that shame turns into pain. And now you can't address the issue that is creating it because you got these two other mountains of emotions in between you. Um, I remember when I met my dad, I didn't meet my dad until I was 23 years old. Mm-hmm. And I remember, um, Shen, I remember um, having these ideas about who he was and the life yes. he was living and, you know, all of these things that I wanted him to be. Um, and to come to find out when I met him, he was none of those things. Um, but the thing he was eventually that I learned, um, was everything that I wanted him to be for me. He was that for his other family. And then I began to ask the question, if you had the ability to be able to do it for them, why didn't you do it for me? We always come back to that. Why didn't you do it for me? And we often talk to our dads about you don't want to put yourself in a position where you can't 
answer questions that your child is going to ask you, particularly this question. And that is, why didn't you fight for me? Mm. Why, why didn't you fight for me? When you think about um, your dad, when you think about both your, um, your, your stepdad and your biological dad, how did the relationship with the two of them impact how you interact with men? I think that's a really interesting question. And, and I was sort of just thinking for a minute about the, the thing you said about fantasizing about who your dad was going to be. <laughs> because I think that's in every kid. And I think that ultimately gets tied to a bit of that shame and pain as well, right? Because if your dad could be any man walking on the planet, well, listen, none of us are picking the guy sleeping on the corner, right? None of us are fantasizing about that being our dad. We're all fantasizing. And and listen, I grew up in a time where a lot of rock stars were finding their lost children. And so it became a story for me in my head, like, you know, my mom got around pretty well. So like my dad could be any of these great people. And we were from the West Coast and I was born in California. So we had this opportunity for it to be a plethora of like, Hollywood elite people that I could really fat that I could really make a case for, right? Because because mm-hmm. we lived in the Los Angeles area, so mm-hmm. um, that fantasy really led into finding my dad. Um, and and like most people, that first question being, "Where were you? Where have you been? What's been going on?" And for me, was trying to reconcile. Uh, my father's story to my life, which didn't add up. One plus one did not equal two, right? That story doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the timeline. It doesn't fit. Like, we're not in a court of law, but none of this alibi fits is all I'm saying. And so that coupled with the, the man who did do much of my raising, at least before the system raised me, made me understand and and I think made me streetwise and I believed everyone was hustling me. Mm. Wow. Yes. And and that is probably the thing that still sticks with me to this day. When I meet someone new, the first question, even when I'm trying to make it not the first question that goes through my brain is, what do you want? Mm. Why? Why? Right? Because when you live with someone who's running from the law, they're hiding something. Why? And so there's a constant con happening. And then with my own biological dad, because the story wasn't forthright, it's what do you want, right? Like, okay, so I'm stuck between everybody wants something. Mm-hmm. And if all you want as the child is someone to, to love you, someone to tell you you've done the right thing, someone to give you some some guidance, like, could you tell me I need a 401k or something that's going to have positive impact right. in my life? <laughs> when that's all you want, 
Um, and you know you can't get it to the people who are supposed to be closest to you and have your best interest at heart. What I found for myself was there's nobody that can give that to you except yourself. Everything else is a hustle. Mm-hmm. And what that did was make me think I will be alone forever. Because there's no one else you can trust. And I think people have two responses to that. I think there are people who respond the way I did. Mm-hmm. My heart shut off. I'm not letting you in. And, <laughs> and, and that's just where it is. And then there's the other piece of, let me let everybody in. Why? Why? Until I am just heartbroken because everyone mm-hmm. is coming and taking And I think I saw that with my mom as the example that, like, you know, my mom had been married six, seven times. I haven't spoken to her in a long time. She could be on nine or ten for all I know at this point. <laughs> and so I thought, well, that's not the life I want. Mm-hmm. So I will just walk through the world in complete isolation. And if COVID taught us anything, is isolation is really bad for us. So how did your husband slip through? So it's actually a funny story that we just talked about last night because we we heard something similar is that um, I actually hired my husband for one of his first jobs. That's how we met. And, um, you know, there was a group of us that were kind of all around the same age. And so we would hang out and and he said to me one day, hey, you want to want to go to a movie? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, and I, I really didn't think anything about it. And he picked me up and we were driving to the theater and I was telling him, oh, I was on the phone with my girlfriend and I was telling her we were going to this movie and she's kind of teasing me that we were going on this date. And I was like, no, no, we're going just as friends. And um, I remember it to this day, my husband was driving a, a Chevy Nova that didn't work great, manual, <laughs> stick shift. Uh, we were pretty young at the time. And he stopped the car and said, and looked me dead in my eyes and said, I have enough friends. Mm. And I just was like, <laughs> oh, like, you know, it just wasn't because I was so closed off. It just never even crossed my mind that wow. I would be anything other than friends with people. Mm. And like that statement, yeah. right? And that statement was like, yeah, sometimes you need someone to just no bull, right. look you dead in your eye and tell you, nah, I don't, I don't need more friends. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because you know my wife has a similar background to you as well. She was also in the foster system, um, and she also has you know suffered abuses as a child. Um, you know, and if I know enough about your husband. And I know that he knows enough about you that he has committed to understanding certain things about you and it being okay, right? Yeah. Not trying to change or just, or have you open up and bear your entire 1000% soul to him. Like he doesn't need to know everything that's in your head as long as he knows everything that's in your heart. That's how he sounds to me. When I came to that, is that, is that an accurate depiction? I think it's accurate because 
he actually didn't know about my time in foster care until we were married for a long time. Wow. And wow. so a lot of those pieces, like he knew bits, right? But like, and he talks about it, like it, until he really understood foster care, it was like, mm-hmm. I could just never really quite tell because like dates and times don't match up because when you move it, you know, I'll talk about living in LA and I can talk about living in Vegas and I can talk about living. And it's like, wait, this doesn't fit <laughs> together. You know, for someone who like had a couple of moves in his life with two parents at home, right? Like that doesn't always like fit in that context. And so um, it answered a lot of questions. But he's not big on like, I got to know the details either, to your point. He's like, I can, I get it. Mm -hmm. I get it. And, um, you know, I joke and tease him because he grew up in an Italian Catholic family. And I say that the guilt and shame of being an Italian Catholic family sometimes (laughs) outweighs the guilt and shame of foster care as well. (laughs) And so there's enough family drama sometimes in a typical household, but you don't really have to get vested in my uh, soap opera drama. But we are really conscious about how we parented our own child because of that and, and why and how we've kept my biological family at arm's length intentionally. Okay. So you wrote this book, Garbage Bag Suitcase. Talk to me a little bit about how that book helped you frame your life yeah for me it was you know at the time I was um working as an administrator in a law office with my husband who's a practicing criminal defense attorney and we were really asking about like how can we help our clients make better decisions because that's what you know it's a really silly question today but that's where we started the work and listening to client stories I quickly realized how many of the them, you know, kids, they were grown adults, but had been in foster care. And I hadn't really disclosed my foster care experience. And a client said, if you don't tell the story, you're, you're silencing all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your silence is silencing the rest of us. And uh, talk about guilt and shame, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, these were clients that weren't in positions to, to share their stories. They weren't in healed states. They were in active addiction. They were, you know, going to prison. They were spending lengthy stays in jail. And so what I actually thought was, it's not about my story. It's about what are we going to do to not make that the story of another generation of kids. And so telling the story for me was the ability to get people to change their mindset about trauma and about our day-to-day interactions with families and in communities so that people weren't isolated and alone because I really saw that as what keeps us um, locked in poor outcomes, right? When we look at the statistics of foster kids that 50% of the boys will be in prison by 19 and a half and 50% of the girls are going to be pregnant by 19 and a half. These kind of things lock us into places that are hard to escape from. Mm -hmm. And so the book for me was framing the story in a way that people would say it's possible. Mm -hmm. There are things we can do. Um, I had a lot of luck in my life. 
I had a lot of things going for me, being a white female, one of them, that um, allowed some doors to open. And one of the things I say to audiences is quite frequently is, why are we relying on luck to save people? Wow. Yeah. You know, I um, I, <laughs> there's so many things I want to ask you and so many things I want to talk about. We don't have that much time, but there are a couple of things that I'm not going to allow you to get away from me before we talk about, because <laughs> uh, I just want to hear you talk about it. Talk to me about Love Bunny. Yeah, so, I mean, Love Bunny sits right here. Is that, is that it right there? Is that it right yeah. there? Wow. <laughs> Love Bunny sits over my shoulder every day. Right, Love Bunny was the thing. I, I think it's really interesting how we talk about, people ask me how I survived, and I said there were two things. I was an early reader, and Love Bunny talked me through mm. how to survive. And people don't understand the... the the power of the conversation of that literally being the only object I had to get me through. Mm -hmm. Like I would ask that rabbit everything. Mm -hmm. Um, I would ask that rabbit for protection. I mean, that rabbit is me, right? So, (laughs) so the conscious of love bunny, as silly as it is, as a, as a middle-aged human that I still have to talk about it uh, openly and honestly, (laughs) But I, the truth is, is I wouldn't be alive without that rabbit. Wow. Have you um, given thought or was this intentional um, that you have surrounded Love Bunny with a bunch of people? Was that intentional? Uh, have you thought about that? Have you turned around and looked and looked at how yeah. many other things you've surrounded it with? It, yeah, it, it's intentional. And, and all the animals are intentional, right? Because it's it's the monkey to remind Love Bunny that we can still have fun. It's the giraffe to remind Love Bunny that we have a big heart. It's Love Bunny surrounded by an elephant that we have to talk about the elephants in the room, right? Mm -hmm. The owl for wisdom, the horse for vision, the lion for courage. Mm -hmm. The animals are specific. There's even a hummingbird hiding in there for energy. yeah, the animals that surround Love Bunny are intentional to remind us that we still need all of those things because at different times we've had to hide those parts of ourselves, we've had to protect mm-hmm. those parts of ourselves. Now you also see that Baby Yoda's in there, which I a friend see, of mine. Said, I, I saw it, but I was like, "What is that? A panda or or?" Yeah, like- Baby Yoda's in there because our friend of mine said. Shen, that sounds good. That sounds like something you would say, but sometimes you need a Jedi mind trick to survive these things. And and so there's also a reminder that sometimes you need a Jedi mind trick to to heal as well. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Um, The other thing I wanted, I got two more things and then I'm going to let you go. Um, the apology that you long for from your biological father. This is the chapter that I just listened to today for the second time. And I think that apology, if that apology could be written in stone, like the Ten Commandments for people who need to hear that apology for those dads, it could probably heal 75% of the human beings that live on this planet 
if they could have that stone in their house with that apology. Talk a little bit about that apology. I might try to take the audio and drop Mm -hmm. that at the end of this conversation so that people can hear that because I heard it and it healed me because I've never gotten that from my dad. I I, I heard it and I was like, my first first I said, who helped him write it? I was trying not to go there and I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I said, but my dad's actually really intelligent, which is an interesting <laughs> twist to this whole story. But um, you know what's really interesting, Kenneth, is that when I received the letter, I was angry. Mm. And I didn't hear it. And actually, when I put the letter in the book, it was because I was still angry. It actually took me reading it several times and many people, including you, saying, that must have been really special when you got that. And every time someone would say it to me, I would think, that was that like, no, that wasn't it. <laughs> no, that wasn't it at all. <laughs> and so it took me, um, even after the book was published, I was still struggling with it. Mm. And then I got to a place and I actually had a conversation with my dad about four or five years ago um and i said you know people really like the apology and he said maybe it's meant for others Mm. because i think he knew why i had put it in the book Mm. but it was that comment that made me begin to see the apology in a different way yeah that was that's that's uh yeah, I might have to. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with that, but I'll, I'll be talking to you about what I'm going to do, what I have. Right? Because it's, it's so, that. talk about the interpersonal, though. Like, even if you receive the apology from your dad, it's like, right. because of time, because of, right? Like, right. Yeah. could it be real? And I think that played in my mind. Is this real? <laughs> Who, who's behind this? What's it, right? Like, again, protecting that heart because if you let it go, what happens? Right. But I'm listening to it, and then he gets to this point, and he says, oh, but let me, I'm paraphrasing now. Oh, but let me be clear. There's some things I'm not apologizing for, and I get like, <gasps> like, it's true. Are you getting ready to destroy everything you just said? Are you setting me up again for another yeah. failure? And it's like it was a rocket booster. It was like that first half of it was the yeah. it got to a certain that in order my pastor always talks about the um the mechanics of rockets and it talks about how the rocket boosters take it up so far mm-hmm. and then when the atmosphere is ready and it's ready to take on the, the boosters fall off so that mm-hmm. they continue to climb that was the image i got when i heard him mm-hmm. get to the second half last half of that poem. i have um i've come to the belief and i could be wrong that my father is still in love with my mother Mm. He will deny it. And I've asked him numerous times, but there are many things that lead me to believe that that is still the case. Wow. And so I think um, there is much pain for him. So just as much trauma that surrounds for me, right? Others have trauma as well. And I think when I'm in my rational brain, I can think about 
uh, the trauma of my father, the trauma of my stepfather, the trauma of my mother. And I can see that I think my father is still in love with my mother. Mm. If he dropping words like that and letters like that, he might be able to get her back and add on that 11th <laughs> or 12th or whatever she's up to now. They could try it again. <laughs> that might be the end for me, Kenneth. That might be. Let me know because I want to come. I want to be there. You know that? You have your people I like, can. yo, who's that I black guy in the back of the church? It's like, oh, that's a friend of mine I met some time ago. We're he gonna, asked him. We're going to sell tickets to this event because we're all on this ride together. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, but I think that when we have unhealed trauma, right? When, yeah. when we're unhealed, we harm others. And so there is a piece of me that still believes that exists. Now, is that real? Or is that still that little girl who is still wishing, mm-hmm. much like the little boy in you, Kenneth, still wishes yeah, yeah, yeah. that our parents were together? Right. Yeah. And I'm very conscious of that. Like, because I think that exists for anyone, whether your parents got divorced or they were amicable or whatever the thing is. I think there is a piece of everyone who wishes their parents were still together. Always when people ask me that question, if you could have did anything in life differently, you know, you always start with, no, I would never change anything. Mm -hmm. But if I was forced to, and this is no indictment on any Mm -hmm. of the mothers of my children and more specifically Mm -hmm. my wife, my lovely and beautiful wife now, but if I could change anything, I would have been that guy that got married and had all my children by one woman and was married for 75 years and died happily ever after. (laughs) This way, my no one would have to deal with any of the traumas and dramas that, you know, that we have dealt with in our lives, mm-hmm. you know, moving up. But I want to ask you this question because it's something I want you to talk about because I think this is also going to heal some folks. Because I lean so heavily on the work around responsible fatherhood and talking a lot about father absence, we don't talk a lot about mother absence, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that people often have when it comes to the two things is whether or not one is more is more profound than the other. And I always mm-hmm. say, and this is not from experience, it's just based on people that I know who have issues with their mothers, that they are both the same, that mother absence and father absence feels the same way to a child. Is that true or not true? I think that's true. And I would say that in mine, I'm complicated because if you ask me who was the most active parent in my early childhood, it's actually my stepfather. Mm. I mean, that was really the most active person in my life. Now, not in a positive way, but like the person who, you know, like I, I just said this to my husband. I don't ever remember my mother cooking anything. Mm. Not a single thing my whole life, but I can remember my stepfather occasionally making something. Mm-hmm. Like, so when I even think about roles, right, we think about men and women and their traditional roles and all of that. Like, I never remember those things. Um, I only remember going school clothes shopping once in my childhood and my stepfather brought me. Mm -hmm. Right. So like those things that you like that you hook to for me, like, and and my stepfather would often bring me to work with him. So he was a landscaper. Now Mm -hmm. I was often doing child labor. Don't get me wrong, but like, but I was with him. Why? Yeah. that It's a really interesting 
piece for me because my mother and father were very much absent from my entire life. Why? And I only have any kind of parenting memories. Why? Are from a person who wasn't really my parent. Yeah, you used the term, and I'm, I, I wanted to write it down, but I was so caught up in the term that I was so caught up in the feeling of what you were talking about that I mm-hmm. never wrote the term down. And you were talking about your stepfather and you were talking about when you got married that you invited him to your wedding um, mm-hmm. because there was this sense that you wanted something there that was a part of your family, even though that relationship between you and him was dysfunctional. And then you mm-hmm. used this term about what that was. And I can't remember what the term was um, that you just- I, I'm not sure either, but- it, it, for me, I say quite frequently, which is the, the pain I know is better than no pain at all. Mm. Wow. And, and my stepfather and I had that relationship up until his death, which was, um, it was completely unhealthy relationship. He is the source of much of my pain and abuse, as is my mother. She, she's not immune from that either. Uh, and many other people that my mom was with. But he was better than being alone. Mm. Wow. And so when you get married and there's no one, there's no one to call. Right. Right. I mean, do you show up in the embarrassment of nothing? I mean, my husband's from a gigantic Italian Catholic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the contrast is big. It's right. big because it's like, all the cousins and the cousins of cousins and people that aren't really related, but still are somehow relate, right? Like they've mm-hmm. got all of that going on. Mm-hmm. And you're like, where's this guy? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, and his current girlfriend. Right. It's almost like the seat fillers at the Oscars. It's like, uh, That's exactly it. <laughs> That's it. And so, but that's the trauma of it, of that, you know, when you talk about the pain of then finding your father mm-hmm. and, and, and the absence, it's like, but you weren't there. Why? Yeah, 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 yeah. You wow. weren't even there to seat fill. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, I got one more thing because I want to end this on a high note because I thought that this was so beautiful and I want you to talk about it. And then I want you to share with us how people can get in touch with you and more importantly, how they can purchase your book. Um, but you learned the meaning of your name. I am huge on that. Your name. We were talking about this the other day and we were talking about last names and people were talking about why people change their last names and why mm-hmm. people change their names. And they were saying um, that, you know, that if if it was a young lady I was talking to and I said, would you change your name? Uh, if you got married and she was like, no, I would hyphenate my name, but I would not change my name because my name is who I am. And yeah. I said to her, I was like, your name is not who you are, it's who you become. Uh-huh. And so you can have a name and never become that thing you are named. But when you are 
raised into that name, mm-hmm. right? By whatever your circumstances are, that name tends to have more meaning. Shenandoah, tell us what that means and what that meant to you in finding I out. feel like it- I feel like you opened up a can of worms because what we did say is that I actually, um, my maiden name actually isn't my maiden name at all. I lived under an assumed name my entire life until I got married. Wow. Which is a whole separate story we could (laughs) (laughs) But Shenandoah has always been my first name. That was my birth name. That has always been my birth name. And my mom and stepdad had told me that it was my name because they met at the Shenandoah Hotel in Las Vegas, which was wow. Wayne Newton's hotel. And so I believed that story my whole life until a journalist who was writing a story on me, and I shared that story with him. And a week later, he came back and said, impossible, that cannot be your name because that hotel was built after you were born. <laughs> and so I was shamed in from the first time of having to reveal my about my biological mother and issues. He was part of the crux of, of writing the book as well, him and that that initial story. But in the in the trying to find out, okay, so where did this name come from? I happened to live in a community of lots of indigenous Americans and uh, was having a conversation with a person, an elder, and, I, and they said, oh, are, are you Native American? And I said, no, not at all. And they said, well, do you know what your name means? And I said, nope, <laughs> no idea. <laughs> and so they bestowed upon me the wisdom that it comes from and it uh, translates to beautiful daughter of the stars. Man, that was so. I, when you said that, when I read heard you talk about, I was like, you know, I'm always a look at God, look at God, yeah. just like you know, here, you know, here we are, my child. This is this is what I was trying to get you to, um, yeah. and I know that the path wasn't the ideal path for you to get here, but here you are, like manifesting who I meant for you to be and what my plan was for your life. How do you feel about that? Um, yeah, because it's a name that you grow into, right? Right, right. Kenneth, I would have done anything to be a Kenneth. <laughs> 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 you know, I say it like a Jennifer, like just get, you, you know, it was, there's a lot of pain in being Shenandoah um, in some of the neighborhoods I grew up in. That, that, that was not met with with applause by any means, but it's a name that I've grown into. And I think for me, it is a point of pride at this point and Mm -hmm. something that almost an expectation to try to live up to at this point. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, I keep saying I want to end this conversation, but I would not do this conversation justice if I didn't talk about Sophia. Mm like the product of who you are and everything you've gone through and everything you are today. Here is this beautiful little girl. Um, And as you described in the book, um, you being very transparent with her with respect to your life um, and then asking her how she felt about that. That was just a beautiful, to me, a beautiful moment. Talk to me a little bit about her and how the woman that she is becoming. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't be more proud. As you know, I think every parent says this about their children. Um, I thought I was going to screw it all up. Mm-hmm. So I, I think my my parenting story starts with, I'm probably not the best person to have children, right? Like I had no role model for what a parent should be on either side, a father or a mother. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have Sophia. And um, when I was writing the book, my editor called me one day and said, have you asked Sophia what she thinks? And, you know, I hadn't, I, I hadn't really put some thought into that. And so I picked her up from school one day and I said, you know, I'm doing this thing and you're learning kind of about my parents and what's going on. And and what do you think about the whole thing? And, and like out of the mouths of babes, right? Like if you're going to ask them their opinion, they're going to tell you. So, right. um, and I was sort of like firmly holding on because I didn't know what she was going to say. And she just said, I feel like your parents missed out. Mm. And, and that stuck with me, but it, I think it also summarizes who she is today. You know, she'll, she's actually turning 21. She's going to college overseas. Um, and I'm watching who she's turning into, and it's actually really quite beautiful to see because I think there's that part of you when you've had such a difficult relationship with your parents that you too will have a difficult relationship with your children, right? Like, and, and to see uh, our friendship grow, to see it evolve, right? From, from protector to, to um, her making decisions, whether I agree with it or not, her making <laughs> decisions um, it is really quite beautiful. And it's interesting because as she gets older, she wants to ask more powerful questions. You know, she she asks about my mom in a different way, not about the trauma, but she she wants to get to the heart of like, also tell me the good stuff about her. Right. right. Like, I want to kind of begin to see her because, you know, my daughter has never met my mother. Right. Right. And she's only met my dad maybe two or three times in her whole life. So she doesn't have that relationship with a grandparent, which I think is also a foreign concept to her. And, and you know, we talk about generational trauma quite frequently. Like, what does that mean mm-hmm. wow. uh, for her and, where, and how she's grounded in the definition of family? So it's it's interesting to watch her evolve around that story as well, because now it is part of her story. Wow. So Shenandoah, tell people how they can get in touch with you, how they can purchase your book, where they can find you on social media, all that good stuff. Well, Kenneth, the good thing is, is when your name's Shenandoah Sheffalo, you're the only one. <laughs> so if you spell it right, you can find me anywhere in all of those places. So The book website is garbagebagsuitcase.com. You can absolutely find me there. The book's available at all major resellers, including Amazon. You can also find me at shuffleoconsulting.com on all the social media platforms. And yes, I do answer all of my emails. Yes, she does. She responded to me, (laughs) and I'll vouch for that. 
Shenandoah, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I will have you back on because I want to talk about your work and I want to talk about the work that you're doing and how um, you are helping healing individuals and families, especially in the foster care system and beyond. And so we didn't get a chance to talk a lot about your work today, but I want to get you on so we can stay narrowly focused on that work in and of itself so that we can make sure that we connect people with the resources that they need to get through the issues um, that they're getting, that they're going through in their day-to-day lives. So thank you so much for being on I Am That podcast. I appreciate you. And as my bishop always says, um, I love you and there ain't nothing you can do about it. And so- Thank you so much for having me on. No, thank you. And thank you for everybody for listening to I Am That podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. You can find our podcast on IamDadPodcast.com and all of your favorite um, podcast platforms, as well as YouTube. If you go to the I Am Dad podcast, the video version of this um, shows up on our YouTube page. Many people, um, everybody's not audible. Some people are visual and I get that. And so until next Sunday, um, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period. Period.